0: Welcome to episode 21, airing in early July 2020. Hi friends, today in the new Indian Woman podcast, we have Harini Nagendra. Harini is a professor of sustainability at Azim Premji University. She has conducted research for over 25 years on sustainability in forests and cities across India and elsewhere. She is a well-known public speaker, columnist and author who writes on ecology and environmental issues for popular audiences. Today, we are going to together explore and share with you what today's Indian woman can do to creatively engage herself and her family, especially kids, with the environment. Welcome, Harini. It's wonderful to have you as a guest for this episode.
1: Thanks so much, Krishna. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: It would be nice to know a bit more about you, Harini. I am surprised that you have 25 plus years experience in sustainability, which means you started working in this area long before the word sustainability started coming up in newspapers. <laughs> so how did you find this area? What sparked your interest in this field?
1: So I did an undergraduate degree in microbiology, chemistry and zoology and I completed in '92. And joined the Indian Institute of Science program on an integrated PhD in biological sciences. Okay. And at that point, I did uh, two years of molecular biology. Hmm. But I realized that I didn't like it. What I really liked was being in the outdoors. And uh, so at uh, sort of a completely chance encounter, I met my PhD supervisor, Madhav Gadgil. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: many of you might know of his name. He was on the very famous uh, Western Guards expert panel, advisory panel that actually recommended that Uh, environmental preservation of the Western Ghats is required urgently.
0: The famous Gargill report.
1: The very famous Gargill report. The same person, a very well-known, internationally known uh, ecological expert. So completely by accident, I went in to hear somebody else talk in an ecology symposium and I landed up hearing him talk. And a lot of what he said resonated with me. If we are doing research in India using Indian taxpayers' money, it would be nice to try and do something that relates to some action in India which can be useful for the country and to do low-cost research. Mm -hmm. So I went to him then and asked if he had vacancies for a PhD position, which he did, thankfully. Sort of sidestepped into conservation. I wanted to do something that had some application. Satellite images were just then coming in. So I taught myself the software and the statistics required for processing. This is 94.
0: Yeah. So which means this taught myself, we have to understand is without Google or any browsing (laughs) capability, which by
1: itself is a huge challenge. Right. And uh, IISc had just got its first supercomputer. There were commercial software available, but we couldn't afford it. So I used free software, Mm. which meant that you had to also learn how to do coding, it was a very exciting time. The thing was, I had no training in anything, not in mm-hmm. ecology, not in forest, not in remote sensing, not in statistics. And so I came with a complete blank slate, having to teach myself everything. In retrospect, I think that has been a great strength. Right. My lack of training has allowed me to not bother too much about where the boundary of one thing ends. So I was doing a purely remote sensing and biodiversity focused PhD, mm-hmm. looking at the Western Ghats. But then I realized a lot of the whys of why are forests changing? Why is biodiversity going down in some places? Why is biodiversity increasing in some places? is all the human part of it. Hmm. So then I got interested in understanding all about institutions, policies, how do people think. Then I went to the US to work with Professor Eleanor Ostrom. Mm -hmm. who was the first ever Nobel Prize winner of economics who happened to be a woman. She's a political scientist. She passed away a few years ago, but I worked with her for almost 11, 12 years, working on how people and institutions of management, like community management and community groups, actually interact to protect nature. So, of course, people act to destroy nature, like we've seen in many cases. Mm -hmm. But there's also a very positive aspect when people come out as communities to conserve nature. And that became my focus. And I'd say the third part of the journey came when I moved back from the U.S. to India in 2003 to Bangalore. And Bangalore had been away for three years but had changed hugely. Hmm. That's when economic liberalization had happened and the IT industry was booming, roads were being expanded, trees were being cut, lakes were being filled in. So I could see so many changes in the city, both positive and negative. And I realized as ecologist, nobody studies the city. You always
0: associate ecology with uh, some forests and some hills far away.
1: (laughs) Exactly, far away. And on the other hand, people who study cities act like ecology doesn't exist. Trees and lakes shape the culture and character of Bangalore so fundamentally. Then I got interested in studying changes in Bangalore with a very clear idea of linking that research to specific action on the ground. Hmm. Because Bangalore is my city. For all its changes over time, I still love more than any city in the world. So that's really how this sort of sidestep into sustainability happened for me.
0: Harini, I also want to step back in terms of your growing up years. Do you think there is a strong connection between what you chose as your career and what pulls your heart Mm. and how your parents and the adults around you, how they influenced you?
1: I think very strongly, I didn't realize that. It's later when I started writing Nature in the City and started thinking of why did I get interested in urban ecology Mm -hmm. that I realized how much the childhood experiences have shaped me. So my parents, very different experiences with both of them. My father, we would go on long walks on the weekends. Hmm. And he liked these very brisk long walks. So till I was 10, we were in Delhi. We were close to this area which had a lot of the, all of these embassies. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it was extremely wooded and beautiful. Other times he would take me to the deer park in Delhi or some other parks. Mm-hmm. And we would go for an hour, hour and a half. We wouldn't stop to look at the trees or admire the flowers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But we were in nature. Okay. And Delhi's deer park, for instance, you could pluck out grass and feed the deer. Mm-hmm. My mother had a BSc in botany. She still has a huge love for plants. So, we would also do our walks, but there would be ambles really and we'll stop and look at every flower that's interesting. She tell Ooh, me about the family okay. of the flower. We would take apart the petals and look at the insides, how many petals, how, what kinds of seeds, adaptation. So, we wouldn't get very far, but we were on these exploratory ambles. I think all of this influenced a lot. True, absolutely.
0: And when you talk about urban ecology... The term, of course, you are in that area, but for the benefit of the listeners, could you just give a quick introduction to what urban ecology means?
1: Urban ecology is essentially looking at what happens to ecology in the city. And ecology is very broadly defined. Mm -hmm. You know, the stubborn, persistent cockroaches that don't go away, whatever you do to your house. They are also living in an ecological space. Their ecological space might be behind the light switch or into the drain. Mm -hmm. The rats that try and come in or bandicoots in your garden. That is as much part of the urban ecology as the streets and the trees on them or the kites and vultures that you see or don't see, the sparrows that are disappearing from your city, the slender loris and the monkeys that come in. All of this is part of an ecological system. So when you say ecology, it's not just a counting of the numbers of species, but it's Mm -hmm. also the relationships between the species. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Near my house, I used to live on the periphery of the city. Mm -hmm. Now the city has swallowed my house but uh, when we moved in in 2006 there were these uh, beautiful green birds called green beaters okay and they used to hang out on the tv cables and continuously chatter every evening beautiful sight to see about 10 or 12 of them hmm. there was a eucalyptus grove and somebody cut down the grove hmm so maybe 300 meters away immediately after that these birds stopped coming to my area oh okay okay and now after this COVID-19 lockdown, I'm now seeing four of these green beaters back after about 10-12 years. So where have they come from? Where did they disappear to? Mm. So this is what urban ecology is. Understanding these relationships, these patterns of why when you do something to one area, another area changes. How does it change? And how can you understand these interrelationships? That's really the urban ecology of cities.
0: And the importance of understanding these interrelationships, why do you think it is important?
1: For many fundamental reasons. So let's look at lakes, for instance. We do a mm-hmm. lot of lake restoration. And the way in which traditionally many governments were done is an engineering project. You think of a lake as a water body and you do what is called a soup bowl. It looks like a bowl. The deepest part is in the middle and you scoop out the sides and you put cement all around. Hmm. But that is not how our old lakes were. If you go to any rural area or any small town in India, what kind of a lake will you see? There will be a wetland. hmm And a shallow side and the mud bank that you see. Hmm. And even the channels that bring the water into the lake will have mud on both sides and grasses and weeds on both sides. Right. And then some of these grasses and weeds, you know, cows will come and eat certain kinds of grasses. Women harvest some of these weeds and use them for cooking. Along that, they clean up the sewage because it also flows down the stream of water. Hmm. And in the wetland, a lot of birds breed. And then you'll have a few rocks or large trees somewhere on the side. And on those, certain kinds of other birds will have their nest. So this is a real living system. When you take this lake and do a soup bowl restoration with concrete all around, you're removing all those breeding spaces for lakes. So you have a lake that looks to me like a large bathtub or swimming pool. You want it to look blue and clean and people want to walk around, but the birds are not there. It's not a functioning, thriving ecosystem. The weeds are not there.
0: So you are not restoring it as nature would have it? Exactly. It is from a more modern aesthetics? Yes.
1: And then you are not keeping principles of urban ecology in mind. You know, you want uh, motorized boats and tourism. You want to have night lights. You want to have parking. You want to have a place where people can eat there. That's how a lot of modern lake redevelopment is done. Like an amusement park type, an entertainment area.
0: Right. So which means this knowledge of urban ecology is something I would consider key for any person doing any role. An architect, part of a government body, a basic minimum understanding of uh, urban ecology or uh, rural ecology, if there is a term like that, required so that whatever one designs, whatever one does as, as part of development, you don't destroy nature in
1: the process. Absolutely. it's really fundamental to all walks of life. So I
0: wish, like we have civics, economics, etc, etc, maybe we should have some of these subjects. There will be a few students who are interested in that and they may take it up. Exactly.
1: I think there are so many interesting ways to do it. I recently talked to a journalist who was covering environment issues Mm -hmm. and she told me, that she is an English major from a college in Bangalore mm-hmm. and the reason she became interested in uh, ecology and environment issues is her professor taught them a course very interesting on how language distances us from nature. So then it got me thinking why not architects have a course on nature, why not uh, engineers have a course on nature from different perspectives. But I think this opening of the mind is very important. True.
0: In rural India or in small towns, we live very closely with nature or at least our rituals, our customs. It involves taking care of temple pond or whatever it is. Maybe it is considered sacred. Maybe that was the easiest way to preserve them. So I have seen your articles and books which examine traditional methods of conservation by villagers. What has been handed down over many centuries, but today we are not living that life. So how do we as individuals living in today's world what is it that we can
1: do there are a number of things that we can do krishna as uh, individuals and as communities Mm -hmm. so as individuals let's say i mean if you have a house the simplest thing would be to do what is called rewilding your garden so if your garden is a very manicured place Mm. if you have that mexican grass or Thai grass or those kinds of grasses take them out and plant indian grasses if you don't have too much of a snake problem, try and replace your grass with creepers.
2: Hmm. You, know, you
1: have these ground creepers, beautiful ones that produce small flowers. Hmm. Okay, Bring a few interesting things like a touch-me-not plant. Nice for the kids also to play with. Bring fruiting trees. Don't cut and trim every part of it. Let a bit of it be wild. Hmm. Don't put lights on at night. Let the insects and the birds have a place. The concept of garden, like not gardens <laughs> which uh, we see
0: yes. uh, in Instagram or wherever. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you are talking about a more natural kind of how a village garden would look.
1: Exactly. So, in the front, maybe you would have some flowering trees, but in the back would be where your curry leaf plant and uh, malige and uh, the tulsi would be in front, of course, but some fruiting trees, little bit of grass, little bit of vegetables. There would be a corner where you create composting, so you, Hmm. those kinds of things. So, a little bit of more of a wild place. Do it organic, try not to spray. As much as possible, use neem oil or um, soap solution or ash solution. All these traditional methods that people used to use for uh, their garden. So that's hmm. one. If you have an apartment, it's still possible. You can have a window box hmm. and grow plants that attract butterflies. You know, grow something. Create a path that is extremely wild. Put a place for birds to come and drink water or a bird feeder. Those very simple things. Right. Compost your own uh, vegetable waste as much as possible. Food waste. But I think the more powerful uh, role I feel you can play as an individual and as a community is in your neighborhood. Hmm. So going outside your house a little bit, and it depends. Different people are different comfort levels with different steps. One thing you could do is: is there any place to plant trees in your neighborhood? Many of us say that government is cutting trees or people are cutting trees, and that is true. But there is also often place for planting new trees. Right. So can we find those places, find the appropriate saplings? and create a weekend drive bring all the kids together and say let the kids plant trees
2: hmm.
1: give them the responsibility of saying now that you have planted this tree it becomes your tree and every day or every weekend you have to go look at the tree pour some water right then the parents of that child will also get involved with that tree you know and have a vested interest and one tree it's again the question of opening your mind yeah so can you do those kinds of things then it depends on your level of comfort with this. But for me, the natural next step would be then some engagement with public action.
0: Mm-hmm. So finding
1: your cooperator, okay, mm-hmm. or whoever your local panchayat head is, or whatever your local government, what is closest to you, mm-hmm. and going to him or her and saying, "What are the places here? Do you have any budget for planting? See, planting is something anybody, any elected representative likes to do."
0: When you see planting, at least in cities, we see these photographs of tree planting, which was undertaken on World Environment Day or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, we are aware that the biggest challenge in that is the maintenance of them. Right, exactly. Right. So as individuals, if we can just pour water. Yes. Hardly one bottle of water. it, It is required only in the initial months. You can take turns pour water because it is one thing to just dig up and plant saplings and go away. But to ensure that the sapling stays there, it is watered, it is not eaten by stray cattle and all that, it's not easy. So maybe we can participate in that,
1: right? Absolutely. Adopt a tree, adopt an open well, not in Bangalore so much because Mm -hmm. we have lost our tradition of open wells. But you go to smaller towns across India, Uh there was always a tradition of a community open well, the one with steps. Yes. And many of them are crumbling and have been abandoned school kids in their 10th and 12th standard holidays it would be perfect to get them to do a survey of what are the open wells left in your area
2: Hmm. and
1: then can you get together you can uh, pay somebody to do this and there are traditional well diggers typically who can open out your well and then that comes back with water and see if that can be maintained as a resource for the community right
0: before this uh, group of well diggers themselves disappear
1: exactly that's important employment for them and uh, promotion of traditional livelihood traditional knowledge
0: So these are things doable. People, especially if they have not done this, there may be a resistance about what would others say. Okay, as if I am coming out to change the village or am I coming into politics? No such thing. These are small steps. You can just call five uh, children in the neighborhood and go look at the well. Look at five wells, right? Yes.
1: Little other things. If you look at the kind of food we used to eat one generation ago, Mm -hmm. so many more wild greens and wild plants in their everyday life. Very important for our nutrition. So again, what one could do is get a group of kids together in the summer holidays and say, go and interview the old people in the village or the town, hmm. and ask them what did they eat growing up, and ask them if they can show you those plants in the neighbourhood. Yes.
0: They can even uh, document some of these things and uh, share
1: it. Share it, exactly. With people now on social media. And it's very nice for the elders also because they feel that their knowledge is being carried forth to the next generation.
0: Yeah, this thing, engaging with public. So for someone who is not used to it, mm. doing it for the very first time may be mm. a challenge. As somebody who has met with a lot of communities who have engaged in these common causes, what are your suggestions in terms of how people can come out of that initial resistance they may feel about
1: this. Sure. Actually, the easiest way for people who are not used to this is to connect through your child and the children that your child plays with.
0: Wonderful, yeah.
1: Or if you don't have children or your children are grown up, in your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your layout, kids on the road, there would be children that you know, that you've seen every day. And in summer holidays or weekends, parents are usually trying to get the kids off their hands and if somebody can take over something. So I think those are nice things. Take the kids on a tree walk to look at leaves of different shapes and sizes or do a cooking class. Hmm. Now, what can you do with different like making ugadi pachadi with uh, neem uh, flowers hmm. or playing games, these traditional games with tamarind seeds? bara, we call them in Canada, or Palanguli hmm. uh, in Tamil, you know, those kinds of things. Anything like that. Each of us will have different expertise or different interests. Some could be in cooking, some could be in composting, some could be in looking at different types of trees, some could be in digging a garden and just planting. Whatever your area is of interest, I think that's the easiest level to start with because kids are very accepting and you also feel less self-conscious with kids.
0: Right. In a small town or in a village, you step out and... You become extremely visible. Exactly. Right. So maybe you can start with such small things. But do you see the scope of engaging the family, especially the children in the context of the environment, the scope of it being very different in cities versus towns?
1: Yes and no. I think it's much easier in towns because it's more safe to take the children. See, whatever it is in a city, Hmm. I think we have that little bit of resistance. If the roads are unsafe, you don't know your neighbors as well. People tend to keep a closer eye on that. So that way it's harder to get kids together. And the other thing is, of course, in a city, tickets tend to be more on laptops and iPads and things like that.
0: But while in cities there are more parks or lakes or whatever for you to go to, Yes.
1: There are other challenges. Yes, yes. But in small towns, you may not even need a road or a park. You might have an empty plot next to yours Hmm. or a little further down the road, which has some very interesting birds that come in or you can look at insects there or a number of different things. You don't need a, a specific public space maybe in many small towns because you'll have little interesting scraps of nature around you.
0: As an individual, when somebody is looking for constructing or buying a house, there are many more things that one can do, Right. In terms right. of whether it is on a land which is encroaching or a lake or public space, <laughs> starting from that and maybe going for local materials. Is there something else that you would like to add?
1: Yes, from an ecological perspective, I think one thing is can we have enough space for a garden set aside? Hmm. Many people don't have land availability, but many people do have the land availability, but concrete it from end to end. Yeah. So can you leave as much space as possible that is garden space? If you already have a large tree, can Mm -hmm. you build around the tree? You see many lovely homes that build around a tree, no?
0: True, that is also there. But on the other hand, nowadays these interlocked tiles is like kind of put all over the place Mm. so that this notion of cleanliness that we have where every place can be washed and
1: kept (laughs) clean. Yes, yes, exactly.
0: Versus some land, if it is there, the rainwater would seep in and and maybe even to have small wells if
1: possible, right? Exactly. A small well would be the most cost-efficient way of rainwater harvesting because that well gives you back... Otherwise, you have to dig these large tanks that are expensive. Right. So that is definitely one thing. Can you have a terrace garden if you don't have space? We have seen slums in Bangalore with such lovely aluminium roof. Hmm. And on the roof, they have kept a number of pots. They can't afford the regular pots. right? Hmm. So they've used old paint buckets, all kinds of things,
2: hmm. plastic
1: bags. And on those, they've kept it on the roof and they are growing vegetables which they can eat. Oh, nice very nice so i think in all kinds of places you can have a space for nature yeah only that
0: intention needs to be there exactly moving on from you as a person who has widely traveled and interacted with people interested in the area of environment do you see development happening only at the cost of environment
1: I think again we have to find innovative ways we need some amount of economic growth but how do we manage that hand in hand you can see a number of interesting places New York for instance there's the high line which is a famous place it Mm -hmm. was a high railway line and then it got abandoned and uh, could become a high crime area but what the authorities decided was here's a long linear space and New York is like Bombay Mm -hmm. very little space too many people Mm -hmm. so why would you waste public space like that so they decided to re- while these, so it's it's so interesting, you've taken a railway line which is suspended in the air hmm. and converted that into a long linear park where people can oh, okay. go. And it's very nice. So the critique of it, which is also important, is that it's unfortunately, it's uh, led to increase in land prices so that entire area has become a very wealthy area. <laughs>
0: okay. And now only
1: the rich get to go into that park. So we have to balance that. Yeah, true, true. But uh, in Mumbai people were thinking of, and this has not gone through, but this has been a plan for a long time by many local residents. It's called Mumbai on two feet. Hmm. So you have all the canals like we have in Bangalore, Kaluways that link different lakes. In Mumbai also, you have all these canals. So the proposal is to restore these canals with a little bit of walking space in between them. Again, linear. You have a place that is extremely congested. So mm. there are interesting examples, I think, from Mumbai. Another lovely example from Mumbai is a couple of the parks. What happened is people used to dump trash on the coastal area.
2: Hmm.
1: And what happened over time, that dumped trash has reclaimed the land from the sea. It's like a landfill that is reclaiming land from the sea, okay. naturally. But it's not surveyed land hmm. because it's extra land, right? It didn't belong to anyone. Hmm. So a number of real estate developers had their eye on it. But before they could do anything, a community group came together and um, protected that area, hmm. put some mud on it, and turned it into a park. Oh, okay. And now that park is beautiful. So many thousands of people come from fishermen to wrestlers, to college kids, to the Ambanis. Park is visited by everybody. Oh, wonderful. So it's such a nice example of a real public space now no developer can come and take over this
0: place yeah. Sure, so when the community gets involved communities engage with a the space then the scope for misuse is very less exactly so moving on to some other completely different topic you as a mother raising a young daughter
1: mm-hmm.
0: i am aware following your uh, posts in social media that you adapt traditional practices in the current context the kind of activities you engage your daughter in, it's very different, at least I felt. So would you like to share some of those?
1: Sure. I see. I've always been very interested in tradition. To me, tradition is a very important uh, aspect of how we keep our relationship with nature in India. Hmm. And that's on the plus side. But the side that makes me a bit uncomfortable is many of our traditions are always about defining boundaries of who we are and who the other is. Yeah. So they become too... When I say religion focused, what I mean is ritual focused, actually. Yeah. So they get away from the original spirit of the religion, but come into the rituals of these are my people. These are my customs and people who don't follow my customs are not people that I want to associate with. Mm -hmm. That's why I've always been very curious of how to raise a child in a modern world today where your children are completely disassociating from their cultural traditions. I mean, so many things we cook. Mm. Now we've forgotten what our mothers and grandmothers used to cook, for instance. So one of the things I make it a point is she's comfortable in the kitchen already. Mm. And she knows how to cook things and it's slowly increasing the things of what she knows. And the other thing is, Certain traditions like kolu, we do this in Karnataka and Tamil Nadu and parts of Andhra. It's kolu or golu, Bombay. Hmm. In the dashara season, you get a lot of dolls together, put them on steps. Hmm. And so I've been doing that. I only started when she was born. Hmm. And over the years, we've been inventing this. One part of kolu can be a very religious one where you have a lot of gods of different kinds and steps. And typically, I don't keep that kind of kolu.
2: Hmm.
1: What I keep is a village area with traditional village activities cobbler and things like that and recently what my daughter has been doing is she takes plastic bottles Hmm. and she converts them into dolls so we have a growing plastic recycled doll family oh nice So (laughs) there's one entire section, which is a sustainability section. Hmm. And then we've been thinking about what can we add to it. So next year we thought we will do, my my mother gave us a lot of old plane models. Okay. And uh, so we're thinking of, uh, can we do something where there's a village disrupted by a highway and an airport. So you can show, we have the village people, but the plane has come in and changed the whole area. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's sort of part of it, or playing games with her.
0: Hmm.
1: Play a lot of the old games that my grandmother used to play with me, hmm. which are again using tamarind seeds or cowdews or playing games. All these gulmohar petals, you know, I used to love that when I was a kid. Huh. You put them, uh, you uh, sepals actually, hmm. but you take them and you peel off the red area, and you, it becomes gummy. You can stick it on your hands, and you get these nail kind of things with red tipped nails, right? So those, or there's these yellow buds of these flowers that you can pop on your hand. They make that loud sound. So a lot of these kinds of things that we do, that Mm. uh, simple things that we, I think all of us used to as kids, but nowadays kids don't see that.
0: Yeah. Maybe we can't blame them because we ourselves don't show it to them and they they are not aware of that world.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, So food choices you mentioned is very interesting because that is one easy way in which we can engage the family with the environment.
1: Somebody that I follow on social media in Delhi, Hmm. he had posted this thing. His mother was making something with watermelon rind. Then I asked my mother, she said, yes, we also make it. And I was thinking, I never thought of this. So it's an attitude of sustainability also. You eat the watermelon, why would you throw the rind?
0: They would always find ways of managing with things around, right? Yeah. As an individual, I always see you looking at the past and then looking at its relevance today. Have you found some things which our earlier generations did, which were maybe not so good and we are so thankful that that has stopped? I'm not talking in terms of sati and child marriage kind of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the context of a community taking care of the common space, Mm -hmm. is it that they always took care, everything done was positive or were there these things which were done, which we are so glad it is not there today?
1: for instance, our own research on commons, Hmm. the biggest, uh, the negative of that that people mention are the caste system and the gender inequalities. Okay. We have done a lot of interviews with uh, people living around the lakes now, it is very interesting. So the upper caste residents around these lakes will tell you only good stories. But the lower caste ones come out with horrific stories that they were kicked, they were abused, they were forced to work, they didn't hmm. get money, they didn't get paid, they were talked to very rudely. When you find somebody who's 70 or 80, and who tells you an incident that happened when they were 15 and they were abused, hmm. and uh, you can still hear the the sorrow in their eyes, you realize yeah. what a system it was. Right. And similarly, women, I think the backbreaking labor of women hmm. that went into a lot of these things... And like you, I'm not even talking about the extreme situation. So many of these lakes across India, you will find there were legends of pregnant woman being sacrificed or a small child being sacrificed, which are, that is one extreme that is horrible. Hmm. You don't even go into that. I think how many of us know, like our grandmothers who did backbreaking work morning to evening. Correct. So that part, I think I'm very grateful for modern life.
0: Yeah. True. So there are so many things that we learn, but it is important for us to look at the positives from the past and see how we adapt it for today's world. Absolutely. And about your books, the latest book that Cities and Canopies, would you talk about how you came about writing these books or maybe read a small section from that,
1: whatever you feel like? Sure. Cities and Canopies is my second book. The first one is uh, Nature in the City, which is based on my research on Bangalore. So it's a long time frame. Bangalore from the past, when we go back about 1500 years ago to present to the Hmm. future. How do people and nature interact? And so that was a book based on research, but written for a diverse audience, even for regular people. Yes. And a lot of people have been reading it. But around that time, I realized that you need to have at least some other books that are much more um, simple for people to read. People who don't read necessarily very widely, hmm. what do they pick up? Hmm. Or people who are not as passionate about nature that, as I am, but want to get more into the discovery area. Hmm. So then uh, another colleague of mine, Seema Mundoli, we've hmm. been working together for a long time, we started talking about doing a popular book on Bangalore trees.
2: Hmm.
1: And from that, it became a popular book on Indian cities. And the trees in them. And then we realized that as women, we relate to trees in a very different way or the emotional aspect of connecting with a tree. So we wrote this book as a book that mixes science with stories, with riddles, with recipes, with fact, with uh, myth, with uh, all kinds of things. And lovely artwork also. Yeah, beautiful artwork, yes. Which is not us. We got (laughs) a lovely artist, another Mm -hmm. young woman to do this phenomenal artwork. Alisha Islam and uh, lovely work that she's done it really brings the imagery of the cities and canopies to life so do you want me to read something small yeah yes okay this is on talking to trees okay unlike animals trees and plants don't move around we often think they're not as interesting to observe as animals Certainly, we may never think of talking to a tree or even consider that trees can talk to each other. But in 1983, two scientists, while studying a Sitka willow, observed something that turned our ideas of plant communication upside down. When the leaves of one tree were attacked by caterpillars, the tree responded by making the leaves more unpalatable, by filling them with poisonous chemicals. But surprisingly, neighboring trees more than three meters away, which were not attacked, also reacted in the same way. This observation was astonishing. It suggested that neighboring trees received warning signals of some kind from the tree under attack. At first, there was a lot of positive buzz around this idea. But later, many influential scientists criticized these studies. The criticism was so severe that the main discoverer, Rhodes, had to quit the field of science altogether. And the idea of talking trees was dismissed for several years. But many years later, a number of research studies conclusively showed that Rhodes was correct wounded trees would communicate with each other through signals sent through the air. When the leaves of one tree was attacked and eaten, it released a cloud of chemicals into the air and other trees nearby sensed these chemicals and were alerted to danger. In 1997, another researcher made a uh, discovery that revolutionized our understanding of tree communication. Trees of two different species sent messages to each other via an underground network of fungal threads which connected the roots. So that is very interesting to me how when we think of plants we often think of animals as sentient beings that have emotions that have Mm. feelings but this entire chapter takes us into a completely different world of discovery of how trees relate to each other not just trees of the same species but trees of different species that are sending food to each other keeping each other from dying during the summer months. Right. We don't even when we cut a tree down we don't think of all the other trees it is communicating with right? yes
0: and i would say this particular book is thing which if as a family if you are not into reading but this is light reading with lot of information so you need not think that a lot of information means boring reading and you could read it out to your children and imagine your child will be sitting staring at a tree thinking about what this tree is communicating with another tree it's so wonderful <laughs> actually We would share the details of these books in the show notes so that people can refer them. I would recommend these uh, books very strongly. Before we wind up, um, Harini, based on your travels across the world, there may be a lot of articles, there may be a lot of studies happening on how to cope up uh, with the widespread destruction, devastation that human beings are unleashing on this world. But do you feel Mm -hmm. exasperated or do you feel a sense of hope?
1: (laughs) So I'm uh, naturally an optimist. So I tend to be on the side of hope. The one thing I feel is rather than saying hope or despair, we have to do something, right? Because if we don't, what are we doing? We have to live in this world. And we are born here, we have kids or other you know, people that we care about younger people who will go on to inherit this world. And so we have to do something. Yeah, we can't. Succumb to despair what I have seen and felt personally also through talking to a lot of people who are doing action on the ground is that the very act of doing something is very enabling hmm. when you feel extremely despondent it's because you have not been doing something but when you actually get out and do something however small hmm. Hmm. then that itself makes you feel extremely positive and energized
0: and it can change you in a ways in which you may not have imagined at all right
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Wonderful. Harini, before we wind up, do you want to share preferably in any other language than English? Just for the feel-good factor that comes with listening to one's own language.
1: <laughs> sure. So, there is a Kannada saying which I would like to change a bit. So, the traditional saying is, uh, Nodu So, you, only if you build a house, you know how to build a house. Only if you can marry a child off, you know how to conduct a hmm. marriage. I would say, Mara Unsi Nodu. Kere Nodu. So, it's something like that. To save a tree, and then you will know how to save trees. Or plant a tree, save a lake, and then that's the way you get to learn how. The whole experience of doing this is going to open your mind in magical ways.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Harini. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Krishna. It was a pleasure.
0: This has been The New Indian Woman with your host, Krishna. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will tell your friends about this podcast. In case you haven't already, please subscribe to this show by clicking on the subscribe button. This means you will get my new episodes automatically and you will be able to listen to them every time I publish the next episode. Do visit my website, thenewindianwoman.com for related blogs on this topic. Of course, I would love to hear from you. You could rate or leave a comment in your podcast app, or write to me at Krishna at the new Remember, you are what you want to be, and the time starts now.